What's going on, Renaissance family? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors. So grateful that you've tuned in with us for our online service. Before we get into today's message, I want to say a prayer for us. Heavenly Father, uh, a lot of us this week are experiencing great deals of anger and frustration and sadness um, and just confusion. So Lord, I pray that you would give me words to say right now that would be helpful, that would meet us exactly where we are, and Lord, that you would meet us exactly where we are. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this past week was, without a doubt, one of the most difficult weeks of my life. And I wanted to see how everyone else was doing. So I turned to some really scientific and trustworthy news sources to see how people were doing. And I turned to social media and I asked people, what, in one word, how are you feeling? Most of the answers were tired, frustrated angry, drained, and my personal favorite, tempestuous. And tempestuous basically means it is characterized by strong and turbulent and conflicting emotions. For me this week, I think I just felt like I was just done. I was angry, I am angry, I was sad, and I was, I'm just tired of it all. One of the things I found out this week is that all of this anger and frustration pent up in our body actually makes us even more tired because it, it has our adrenal glands just firing off and we have nowhere to put all of that, that anger. Now, in the absence of a quick solution, which there is none, how do we maintain uh, the course that God wants us to be on? How do, we, how do we move forward without just straight up collapsing? There's one word for that and it's, it's endurance. The definition for endurance is continuing commitment in the face of difficulty. If there's anything that we need in this moment, we need gospel-centered endurance. Now, a few years ago, I found out about the importance of endurance and all that it means and all that it can do to, to change your actual situation. Uh, my wife and I registered for a race together, not a full marathon, but just a half. And I quickly learned that there is a big difference between registering for a race and running a race. My wife was telling me, hey, you have to make sure that you get all of your training and practice runs in or else you're not going to be able to finish the race. I told her I am a world class athlete. This half marathon is not going to be a problem for me at all. We got out on the race and the first mile felt good. But by the time we got to mile 11, I felt like I was in the Spanish Inquisition being tortured and pulled apart limb from limb by wild horses. It was one of the most miserable moments of my life. My wife, she looked like she was straight up chilling. Now we were in the identical situation, but one of us had endurance and the other one did not. I was miserable and she was fine and we were in the same identical situation, but she just had endurance. Now I say that jokingly uh, to hopefully lighten up the situation a, a little bit, but in this moment, it is not merely the situation that we are in, although we are in a double pandemic fighting both the coronavirus and racism. And by its very nature, it is one of the most exhausting, if not the most exhausting time of my life. But how you and I navigate this moment will be based on our endurance. So today, I don't necessarily have a sermon for you where I unpack uh, an exegete, a text about the high priest Melchizedek, or I read some obscure scripture passage. I just wanna have a, a pretty 
blunt and honest and open conversation with you about endurance and how we get it and how it can make its way into our lives so that we can be people who continue to move forward. Now, the first thing that I know to be true, and um, this is something I've, I've been wrestling with all week, is that if we're going to be people who have endurance, we need to fight for hope. We can't ever lose hope. One of my heroes for the last number of years is a man named Brian Stevenson. There's a movie about him right now called Just Mercy. Uh, he's the founder of an organization called the Equal Justice, um, Equal Justice Initiative. It's a human rights organization in Montgomery, Alabama, where Brian Stevenson, who is an attorney, works to help free people who have been wrongly convicted or um, improperly sentenced from crimes. One of the most compelling cases that he's worked on is a case about a man named Anthony Ray Hinton. And Anthony Ray Hinton was on death row for a crime that he did not commit. And he was on death row for 30 years. And here's the thing that just gives me so much hope from Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson worked on his case for 16 years. For 16 years, it was met with obstacles, challenges, denials, straight up injustice. And for 16 years, he stayed the course and he got Anthony Ray Hinton out of jail. What if after a decade, he said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I'm giving up. This is all corrupt. And he went to Twitter and just started blasting people for um, the injustices. Now, there's nothing wrong with expressing our emotions. But what if he gave up after 10 years, after 12 years, after 15 years? Anthony Ray Hinton would have died. His persistence was rooted in the fact that he never lost hope that he could see a change. And if you and I are going to be people who actually see justice happen in our world, if we're going to be people who ever see change, we have to fight to remain hopeful. Here's what Brian Stevenson says about hope. He says, I'm always hopeful because the only way we make change in this world is when we believe things that we have not seen. Hopefulness has to be the approach we take. So I am hopeful because hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Once we become hopeless, we become prisoner of the conditions that have created so much conflict. You cannot be someone who advances justice if you do not protect your hope and your hopefulness. We, could not, we will not be people who advance justice. We will not be people who hold on to God's hand. We will not be followers of Christ unless we fight for our hope and our hopefulness. Now, scripture tells us to do the same thing. In Hebrews 10 and 23, it says, let us hold, hold, unswervingly to the hope that we profess for the for he who promised is faithful now unswervingly is not a word that you will hear every single day and why does a writer of hebrews tell us that we need to hold um, unswervingly to the hope that we profess because on the road of faith there's a lot of swerves there's a lot of curves on, on this road and the writer is anticipating that in the life of people who will follow god and follow jesus with their lives that there will be curves, and some of these curves will be like a roller coaster, um, hard left, that if you don't hold on, you're gonna feel like you're gonna fall out. And the author of Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that if we're gonna be people of faith, we need to hold on unswervingly to the hope that we profess. What is the hope that you profess about God? What do you believe? What have you believed about God? Now is the time for us to hold on to that hope that we profess. Now, this past week, I've and in many, way, in many ways felt like I was, I was losing hope. I definitely lost my hope in people uh, and I was losing in, in all honesty, some hope in, in God. And I was reminded to hold on to the hope that I profess. What is the hope that I profess? That God is near to us. That even in times where 
uh, I can't see something. I have to trust what God says over what I can see. This is a hope that I've been professing for two decades. And now more than ever, I need to fight to hold on to that hope that God is near, God is present, God has not left us, God is in control, God understands what's going on in my life. We talked about that last week, how Jesus himself was lynched by a corrupt criminal justice system that ran him through so many illegal processes and uh, so that God understands fully with us. He's not just suffers for us, but he also suffers with us. And these are the hopes that I've had to hold on to. So number one, we have to make sure that we are, are holding on to hope. Now, speaking of hope, this brought me to tears last night as I was thinking about it. Uh, my ancestors never gave up hope. In far worse conditions than me, I'll speak for me personally, than I have ever faced personally, they always kept believing, kept hoping, kept praying, kept trusting in horrendous situations. Now, what if they would have given up hope? Where would we be today? I think about my two grandmothers who are no longer with us and how they endured so much in life. And they did it with smiles on their faces later in life that they never lost their smile. They never let, let go of hope in their lives. And that's the legacy that we come from. So number one, we, we have to fight for our hope. But number two, in moments where you feel like you are about to drown or that you are done or you're just so angry, you're so fed up, you want to just say, forget it all. Uh, we have to look away from our situation. And scripture calls us to look up and to look around to other people who have endured hope and similar or sometimes worse situations than the one we are to, to borrow strength and to borrow hope from them. So the second way we gain endurance is by taking our eyes solely off of the present moment and we look to, to Jesus and to others who held on to faith through injustice, obstacles, and persecution. In Hebrews 12, it tells us this specifically. It says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Here's a line. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. Now, a few weeks ago, I said that whenever you see the word therefore in scripture, you have to know what it is there for. And right before Hebrews 12, where the author tells us um, uh, the, these words that we have such a large crowd of um, witnesses, so cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Hebrews 11 is one of the most amazing chapters in all the Bible. If you're down in your life, if you're feeling down, read Hebrews 11 right now. It is such an encouraging passage. And here's what the author is telling us in Hebrews 12 that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Now, I said I wasn't gonna give you guys a lot of exegesis, but I kind of feel compelled, uh, as long as I have student loans, to always drag out um, some of my seminary education. The Greek here in this text for this cloud of witnesses is a word, um, nephos, which basically didn't mean clouds like clouds in the sky. Uh, what it referred to were like the highest seats in a sports stadium. So it's an image, a really powerful image that basically says this. It says two things, at least two things. One, it says that our life of faith is not a spectator sport, that you and I are in the middle of the floor. We are the gladiators. We are the, one that are, we are the ones that are, are battling. 
Faith is active. It is something that you have to put into practice. And number two, it's saying that surrounding you in the stadium are all of these men and women who went before you and they're cheering you on. The author, as uh, they continue, they talk about them, all these people who have already faced the enemy and won their fight. They face the impossible, they accomplish the unthinkable, and they stand as proof that you and I can make it as well. So the author goes back to these people in scripture, Abraham and Sarah, who waited decades in order to realize God's promise in their life. And the, the author of Hebrews says like this in chapter 11, he says, time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, uh, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Scripture says that we are surrounded by this nephos, this great crowd of people, and they're cheering us on. Now is no time to give up. They have conquered through faith and you and I can conquer through faith as well. Last night I was thinking about one of our, our modern day saints who fills the arena uh, a woman named Fannie Lou Hamer. And if you don't know anything about Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, as soon as the sermon is done, read about her life. She was one of the most amazing, godly people that this country has ever seen. Fannie Lou Hamer was a follower of Jesus and the youngest of 20 children. Uh, six years old, she started working as a sharecropper in the cotton fields of Mississippi. She would later go on to be uh, called the spirit of the civil rights movement. And she faced daily um, injustice, she fought and she never gave up. And she, although her story is not as told as some of the men uh, of the civil rights movement, she was a major catalyst in shaping this country to be what it is right now. And here's what Fannie Lou Hamer says uh, as she basically risked her life to get people registered to vote in Mississippi. She says, sometimes it feels like, it seems like to tell the truth today is to run the risk of being killed. But here's what she says. But if I fall five feet, four inches forward in the fight for freedom, I'm not backing off. As I read Fannie Lou Hamer's words um, last night and I, and I thought about all the things that she went through, uh, I thought about her in the great cloud of witnesses and now is not the time for me to feel sorry for myself. Others have endured far worse and they are cheering us on. And when I think about the modern day saints who have kept the faith and they finished their course and they've run their race, it gives me endurance. I think about my own cousin George, who is in my cloud of witnesses, and he is 100 years young. And cousin George, I hope you're watching uh, because we love you. And cousin George said something to us a couple of years ago about hatred. He grew up in the Jim Crow South and told stories of KKK and friends and knowing people who have gotten lynched. And when I asked him, don't you hate them? Here's what his answer was to me, he said, I learned how to hate one time when I was about 22 years old, but it didn't last but a year because that's the most miserable life I've ever had. When you hate, what actually happens is you're miserable 
and you want the whole world to join you in what you're doing, but it doesn't work that way. You can't sleep at night. So I found out, I don't care what people say about me as long as I do right, I'm gonna have myself a ball. And while you hate me, you'll be the one to suffer the consequence. I had to fight not to be angry about racism, but I'd overpower it by going to the book. I read stuff like that from Cousin George. And when I'm tempted to let anger boil up into hatred, I think about the saints who have gone before me and I let their words speak into my life and give me endurance. So number one, we absolutely need to fight for hope. Number two, we need to look up and to also look around at those who have gone before us, our great cloud of witnesses who have endured and they have kept the faith and finished their course. And we also need to look to Jesus in these moments where we are looking at Jesus, the one who endured the greatest hostility. And here's what the Bible tells us about everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. That Jesus, his blood is coursing through your veins. His spirit is breathing in and out of your body right now. And that same spirit that gave Jesus, that raised Jesus from the dead, is bringing life to our bodies right now. So if you feel like you can't hold on, if you feel like you can't persist, know this right here. It is the life of Jesus and the power of God in your life right now that can allow you to endure. In some ways, I had to realize that so much of my life I was and I am self-reliant. And this week, I've prayed a whole lot more than I have been in the past and saying, God, I cannot do this on my own. I need your spirit to bring life into my mortal body, as Paul says in Romans 8 and 11. So number one, we have to fight for hope. We really can't move forward without it. Number two, we have to be reminded to look away from our present situation sometimes and to look up to Jesus and to look around at our great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us and they have kept the faith. Number three, we have to fight against this feeling that what we're going through right now has no purpose. One of the things that you see in scripture is God's precedent that sometimes God allows his people to be agitated before he calls us to do something. One of the things that I've realized the most about what I feel right now is I just feel burdened to do something. Now, there's a difference between wanting to do something and being burdened to do something. There's a story in scripture uh, about the calling of a man of God named Moses. And everybody who has been to church or Sunday school or vacation Bible school knows about the story where Moses himself was called by God in this burning bush to go to old Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, let my people go. What most people miss about that story is what happened in the chapter previous to that in Exodus 2, where well before God gave Moses a call, God first burdened Moses beyond belief. What happened? Now, Moses was a Jewish boy, but he grew up in um, the Egyptian, an Egyptian household. He grew up wealthy and in good standing. One day, he saw one of his own Jewish um, people being beaten by an Egyptian. Moses ran downstairs and he was so angry and so consumed with anger that he beat up the Egyptian and killed him. Now that story is in the Bible for two reasons. One, I think it warns us against taking matters into our own hands, first and foremost. But secondly, it shows us the role that God wants anger to have in our life and and what a burden can do for us. And here's why. Before God ever appeared to Moses in in a burning bush, God first lit Moses on fire. He let Moses be so, become so angry, so enraged at what he had seen, the mistreatment of his people, that he would be willing to do whatever it takes to actually go and seek their freedom. 
This past week for some of you has been something that has been so enraging in your life, but I don't want you to think that it's, it has no purpose. Part of that purpose might just be that God wants you to now feel this burden that you could never turn away, you could never turn back, you could never go back to business as usual. And I think that's one thing that God does uh, in us and through us, through our anger. Before he calls us to do something, sometimes he first lets us feel the pain of what not doing it would feel like. So one, it's not purposeless in that regard. But secondly, I think that there is a moment in life and there are moments in life where God calls us to do something and God has us specifically in this moment, in this time to do something. One of the most uh, well-read books of the Bible is a book called Esther, and Esther is a phenomenal book where Esther is married to this really corrupt king, and Esther herself is a Jewish woman, but the king doesn't know, and the king's family member and friends are trying to get the Jewish people killed. One day, Esther's uncle, a man named Mordecai, comes up to her and says, Esther, you have to go and do something about this. And here's the question that Mordecai asks Esther, and I think this is a question that I want to ask you right now. He says, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What Mordecai was basically telling Esther was, but who knows, what if God has you in this place for such a time as this? What if God were gathering people from all over the country and the globe for such a time as this? What if God was trying to awaken his people to be the church, to be the hands and feet of Christ in such a time as this. Mordecai asks um, Esther this question, and one thing that Esther shows us is that Esther is an example of how God works, not just by miraculous intervention, but through ordinary events and seemingly ordinary people who use what they have to fight against evil and injustice. Sometimes God doesn't work in these big, amazing, earth-shattering ways. Sometimes God just plants people in certain situations and those people will work for his purpose and his cause and for his glory. When I think about the things in my own life that have happened where God was absolutely there, but it wasn't broadcasted, I think about really some moments that if God hadn't led people in certain ways, I myself would not even be alive today. Uh, when I was growing up in Yonkers, uh, my parents, uh, we were living in an apartment and my dad was about to go to a meeting one night. And for some reason that he couldn't articulate in the moment, he just felt like he shouldn't go to the meeting. A few minutes after he decided to stay, I dropped. My lips turned blue, my eyes rolled to the back of my head, and I was having a seizure. Now, had he left, it would have just been me, my mother, and my older brother in the house. And my mother has a number of amazing qualities. She's brilliant, she was a judge, she's a phenomenal writer, she's sweet, she's a good cook, she's beautiful, all of the things, mom, I love you, but handling pressure well in critical moments is not her strongest gift. Uh, had uh, it just been me and my mother, to be perfectly honest, I don't know if I would have been here today. My father is very calm under pressure, he got us to the hospital and they wheeled both me and my mother into the hospital. Both of us were foaming at the mouth, me from the seizure, her from her anxiety. Now, thankfully, I, I pulled it through. I never had a seizure since that moment, but it was that still small voice that spoke to my father and said something really mundane, don't go to the meeting. And that's how God worked in his life and in my life. And I would not be here today without God's still small whisper 
that spoke to him in that moment. Now, scripture is full of this concept that sometimes the way God moves is through the ordinary, mundane, mundaneness of life, but it is advancing his cause and his purpose. Two scriptures that come to mind. One is in Acts 17. It says, from one man, he made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out to and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. I want you to pay attention to what it says in verse 26, that God has determined your appointed times and your boundaries, that God has determined that you should be alive right now in this time, in this moment with your friends and your family for a purpose. In Ephesians 2 and 10, one of my favorite scriptures, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. So if you have placed your faith in Jesus, it's saying that God has created us as his workmanship, his masterpiece, and God is showcasing us to the world and God has things for us to do. He has prepared these things in advance and now is absolutely no time to give up or to quit. So number one, we have to hold on to hope. Number two, we have to remember our great cloud of witnesses. And number three, three, we have to fight against any feeling that what's going on right now has no purpose or that we have no purpose in this moment because now is absolutely no time to give up. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, I thank you for how you are with us and I'm going to hold on to my profession of faith that you are near to us and you are with us even if I don't feel it. I'm gonna trust what you say more than what I can see in this moment. And I'm gonna fight for hope. And Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be encouraged by our cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us and remained hopeful and remained faithful to you, trusting that you are good and you are sovereign and you are loving to us. And Lord, most importantly, I accept the assignment of whatever you have on my life. I thank you for freeing me of previous bondages of comfort and now unleash me, Lord, to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.